Today, we discuss Biden's time with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We analyze a top White House physician's recent comments about Biden's health, and we unpack a new troubling jobs report. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. Happy Friday, everyone. It is an absolute honor to be able to speak with you all today. I hope you've had a fantastic week and are looking forward to the weekend. Friends, I don't have uh, time for too many stories today, but I have three important ones that I definitely want to spend some time on. So we're going to jump right into that in a second. But before we do, just wanted to, again, thank you for tuning in. As always, if you enjoy the show, make sure that you share the show with your community. Make sure that you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you could leave me a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that would be phenomenal. That helps the show grow tremendously. So friends, let's jump right into it. Last episode on Tuesday, I gave you an update related to Biden's week in foreign policy, uh, his trips overseas. And I want to follow up because he had the Putin summit right after my episode uh, where he actually went and met face to face with Vladimir Putin. And then he also had some press conferences where he answered questions about his relationship with Putin. And I think that these are important to address before we move past this topic. So a little bit of a follow up from Tuesday. First, I want to read you a story. Uh, This is out of the Daily Wire. Uh, This is about Biden's cognitive ability. And I I, I talked a lot on Tuesday about how I'm I'm very concerned that our president is not there. Um, I I think that's common knowledge at this point. I think if anybody tries to tell you that he's okay, that's gaslighting you. Um, Honestly, you, you listen to him speak. You can see with your own eyes. You can hear with your own ears. The man is not okay. And that's not even me making fun of him. If anything, at this point, I kind of pity him because I'm like, he's not the one captaining the ship. Um, he's, he's completely asleep at the wheel and there's someone else driving this car. And so, you know, his handlers are the ones that are putting him up to this. You know, Jake Sullivan is really the lead on his foreign policy. Um, his, his chief of staff is his lead on sort of internal affairs. Kamala is obviously steering the ship uh, related to some other decisions as well. Jen Psaki is really his mouthpiece. I mean, there's not much out of Biden that's really Biden at this point. He's, he's really left the building. Um, Now, I think it's a major problem that obviously that's the case. I also think it's a problem that we're ignoring this, that our media is trying to tell you, no, 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 you're not seeing anything. He's fine. He's fine. Don't ask questions. Everything's okay. Representative Ronnie Jackson, Republican from Texas, the former White House physician for both Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So here's a man who, as a physician, the bipartisan physician under two presidential administrations, both Obama and under Donald Trump actually sent a letter to Democrat President Joe Biden this Thursday demanding that Biden immediately submit to a cognitive test because, quote, his mental decline and forgetfulness have become more apparent over the past 18 months. The letter, which was signed by more than a dozen other lawmakers, including by another physician and a dentist, told Biden that he should, quote, follow the precedent set by former President Trump to document and demonstrate sound mental abilities. Quote, the American people should have absolute confidence in their president, the letter states. They deserve to know that he or she can perform the duties of the head of state and commander in chief. They deserve full transparency on the mental capabilities of their highest elected leader. To achieve this, we urge you to submit to a cognitive test immediately. We implore you to then publish the test results so the American people know the full mental and intellectual health of their president and to set an example for all presidents to follow going forward. So this should be a no-brainer. Again, here's a physician who was the top-ranking physician in the White House underneath 
uh, both Presidents Obama and Trump saying, hey, that's only fair. There's more than cause for concern here. And by the way, if you believe that you do have full cognitive ability, why wouldn't you want to showcase that through a formal test to the country? If you really believe that everything's fine, why would you have a problem with taking this cognitive test? So I hope and pray that this administration will heed these calls and will actually do something to showcase. Uh, yep, we believe everything's fine and we're willing to show you. If you're not willing to show us, there's something wrong here. And the fact that they've been so hesitant up until this point has been very concerning. And they've done this about everything. The election's another good example of this. They say, we believe the election was completely free and fair. Okay, well then, we, we want to run some audits just to make sure. There are some questions, so we want to do some audits. And if you really believe everything's fine, you shouldn't have a problem with that. No, 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 you can't do an audit. In fact, we're going to send our attorney general to get angry with you for even doing the audit. We're going to call you right-wing conspiracy theorists. We're going to try to blow up this whole thing, even sicking our justice department on you. It's like, well, wait, that doesn't exactly communicate innocence here. If you say we had the most free and fair election in history, wouldn't you be totally fine with an audit? Because you'd believe that any sort of audit would showcase only that it was free and fair. But your hesitancy, this, this tendency to gaslight and then to be hesitant to any challenge related to so many political issues is very troubling about our current political discourse. So my prayer is that the American people can have confidence in the ability and strength of our top elected officials, uh, elected officials. And when we don't, that's a serious problem. Because again, like I mentioned on Tuesday, our nation's adversaries froth at the mouth when they see weakness from the world's greatest superpower, which is currently and has been the United States. Um, but that'll change quickly unless we have strong leadership at the helm. Uh, second thing I want to uh, read you is, is actually a, a summary on Biden's time with Putin. There's a lot of things that we could talk about here, but I want to give you just one example. Um, Gary Kasparov, he's a Russian chess grandmaster, and he's a longtime critic of President Vladimir Putin. He said the former KGB agent, quote, got what he wanted in his summit with President Joe Biden in Switzerland on Wednesday. Kasparov, a um, longtime Russia critic, he's close to the fire. He has a worthwhile voice to listen to um, because of his, his, uh, his knowledge and intelligence related to Russian affairs. He said on Twitter that the European Union, quote, keeps caving into Putin without American leadership. Biden was supposed to stop that, even campaigned on it. He called Putin a killer, correctly, by the way. But looking tough in Geneva or using strong words doesn't matter. Action matters. And so far, Biden is failing that test. We know the summit is good for Putin, or he wouldn't do it. And everything Trump did was about Trump. But Biden, it's not about him. To give such a gift to a killer to attack the U.S., you have to make the case to the American people, and he hasn't tried. So here's this guy even here complimenting Trump because he's saying, look, Putin would not do these summits unless it was good for Russia. Um, Trump wouldn't do these summits, wouldn't do these engagements unless he saw it as good for him, his administration in the United States. What Biden's doing is basically just going, trying to please uh, the European Union, which is a really bad deal at the moment because the European Union needs to see le strength and leadership from the United States, not the other way around. If you're trying to rely on the European Union uh, to lead the way on foreign affairs, that's a really dicey road to go down. And so this this Russia critic here is is willing to say, hey, look, um, we need a president. We need a leader in the United States who's willing to put America first when coming to the table like this, because otherwise you're just giving gifts to the nation's adversary. Russia is actually not that strong as a country. They're not the USSR anymore. Their GDP is less than the country of Italy. Yet, if you were to watch the summit this week and you were to watch Biden and Putin together, you would think that Russia had the leverage over the United States, just hands down. In fact, there was one moment that was very, very interesting. Um, there was a, a press conference where Biden was answering questions, and he actually said that he gave Putin 16 examples of critical infrastructure that were off limits from cyber attacks. 
And I, I was sitting there watching like, wait, what? You made a Biden, you, you're telling us that in the wake of all these recent cyber attacks, many of which are suspected from proxy groups led by Russia, you're telling me that you told Putin, here are 16 things that you can't touch from cyber attacks. Aren't you implying that there are lots of other things outside of the list of 16 that are totally fine to touch? Like, what exactly is your point here? Um, it was, again, just this moment of weakness that left 330 million Americans uh, very vulnerable. Because what Biden was essentially saying is that you know, if you have a business that gets hacked by a, a Russian proxy group, but it's not on that list of 16, fair game. But this list of 16, and he couldn't remember if it was actually 16. He goes, I think it was 16. Um, this list of 16 is off limits. Please don't touch these. I mean, again, what type of image is this giving off on the international stage? I'll tell you what, it, it's one that really, really excites killers like Putin, uh, killers like Kim Jong-un, killers like Xi Jinping. These are not people that you want to give more strength to. And all this is happening, by the way, while the same uh, week that Russia is conducting military war game exercises just 300 miles off the coast of Hawaii, China is sending more aircraft last week than ever before into and around Taiwanese airspace. And we have a president who's basically asleep at the wheel. And again, at this point, I'm, I'm being more critical of his team than I even am of him. And that's important. I'm not just trying to call out Biden and to make fun of him for his old age. I'm not trying to do that at all. What I'm actually trying to do is say that it's really cruel at this point that his team is allowing for this puppet show to continue going on. And it, they may say it's fun and games and politics, but the reality is they're exposing 330 million Americans and all of our allies um, to a really dangerous set of circumstances moving forward. So Anyways, that's that's my short little summary there from this week uh, following up from my Tuesday episode. I want to read you one more story. Um, this is out of the Daily Wire. This is Ben Zeisloff reporting. Spike in new jobless claims driven entirely by blue states. The number of new jobless claims in the United States last week substantially passed economics expectations, a trend that was effectively driven by blue states alone. A Department of Labor report showed that, quote, in the week ending June 12th, the advance figure for seasonally adjusted initial claims was 412,000, an increase of 37,000 from the previous week's revised level. The figure exceeded economists' forecast by nearly 15%. The data also revealed that two blue states essentially accounted for and slightly exceeded the nation's net increase. Indeed, Pennsylvania and California alone produced 21,590 and 15,712 new unemployment benefits requests. These two states, which currently rank 43rd and 42nd in economic recovery following particularly aggressive lockdown policies, continue to greenlight enhanced federal unemployment benefits. Other states that are still offering enhanced benefits likewise saw rates in joblessness. So we are paying people to stay home, by the way, in these blue states, at the same time that there are jobs everywhere. Everyone is hiring. You, dr you drive through any municipality at the moment around the country and any business that's still operating is hiring. I know that's obviously hyperbole, but seriously, like anybody can see with their own eyes that there are jobs available. But when the government pays people to stay home, what exactly do you expect to happen? And that's why I'm so thankful for some of these red states where the governors have just said, we're not we're not buying into the system anymore. We need to go back to work. It's not loving to enable someone to sit at home all day without being productive. It's not loving. It's not compassionate. I'm so tired of this false compassion mindset that pervades society. 
What's actually compassionate, what's actually loving, uh, loving is enabling someone to be productive, to own their own future and destiny and actually go produce something of value to provide for their families. If you really want to love someone, you'd get them off the couch and you'd actually incentivize them to get to work. Kentucky, under the leadership of Democrat Governor Andy Bashir, followed Pennsylvania and California with 9,127 jobless claims. Despite, despite pleas from business owners, the Democratic governor currently does not plan to nix the higher benefits. Likewise, Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat from Wisconsin, despite Wisconsin's 1,339 new claims, defended the state's continual offering of enhanced unemployment insurance. So here's, here's my bottom line observation here. The experiment is over. Let's look at the data. And let's learn from this data. We have seen over the past decade, um, really since the financial crisis, you know, we, we've been in a state of a sort of ups and downs related to our economy. Um, we have seen what state policies create productive societies, happier citizens, constituents that embrace higher levels of freedom. And we have seen other states' leadership led by a different ideology that has produced the very opposite. Look where people are fleeing right now. Look what states people are fleeing from, and then look at the reasons why. Look why they're, le- why they're leaving California and New York, and then look at where they're moving to. Look at the states like Tennessee, Florida, Texas. Largely, red states have made it out this year successfully, while blue states have been left at a greater dependence on the government and worse living condition- conditions. You cannot, under any circumstance, make the claim that New York is governed better than Florida. It's just objectively impossible at this point. They're two states with very similar populations. Florida's balancing the budget. New York State estimates put New York at a loss of $13.3 billion this year and $61 billion over the next four years. California and Texas, two other states with very similar populations. Um, California is riddled with homelessness, drug problems, fleeing businesses. Texas, on the other hand, is a rapidly growing business environment, consistently ranked one of the best states in the country to start a new business, while California is consistently ranked the 50th state in the country for new business. So the worst. And the middle class is actually growing in Texas while shrinking in the rest of the country. So my bottom line point here is like, why haven't we learned from this? Let's learn from these lessons and respond accordingly. The experiment has been done. We have seen how some of these far left progressive policies work in practice. And it really doesn't matter at the end of the day what your intentions are. It matters what the actual results are. So you know, you have all these people that say in California, well, I just vote blue no matter who because it seems more compassionate. It's not. It's not more compassionate. We've seen it. It's led to worse living conditions, these policies in California. The middle class is dwindling. It's growing in Texas. California's unaffordable. Like, that's not compassionate. Homelessness problems are through the roof. People can't start a new business here. Like, it's not compassionate to create a chaotic society. It's compassionate to create one that actually empowers the individual with freedom to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I, I just, again, my, my big moral of the story today is that this false compassion's got to go. We got to learn what has worked and what has not, what actually is effective, compassionate, and productive in practice. Not just how it sounds in a media soundbite. Not just how it sounds on a campaign stage. What does it actually do in practice? And the data's in. You cannot make the case that New York's governed better than Florida. You cannot make the case that California's governed better, better than Texas. You can't. Just objectively, it's impossible at this point. We've learned. As California has become a utopia of progressive policies over the past two decades, when it used to be a haven for the middle class, by the way, has life gotten better or worse? In almost every category, it's gotten worse here in California. And if we're afraid to point that out because we're afraid of seeming partisan, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know that this, this last little exhortation here probably sounds partisan. 
But it's not. It's just giving an honest look at where has life gotten better and what policies have led to it becoming so and which states have led to a decrease in quality of life, in the affordability. And then let's learn from that. It's not about party politics. It's about there's a set of ideals that lead to productivity and there's a set of ideals that lead to the opposite, to a greater dependence on the government. That's always been the case and it's still the case today. And I hope and pray that we can learn from that. So with that, friends, that's actually all I've got time for today. But I've had a blast speaking to you guys about these important topics. Thank you so much uh, for joining the conversation. It's an honor, as always, that you would tune in. And I pray that you guys have a fantastic weekend. I also pray that this episode was a helpful resource and blessing for you. As always, if you enjoy the show, make sure you share the show with your community. Make sure that you subscribe to the show on the podcast provider of your choice. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I cannot wait to speak to you all next week. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.